everybody. It's so good to be back here in Cambridge. It's been uh, two years since I've been here before. Uh, just so I can see who, like, would remember, who's heard me speak before? Okay, cool. So most of you, then obviously some of you haven't. It's really good to be here. Uh, my name's Nathan Taylor, and um, I am from the United States, as you can tell from my accent. But the main biggest thing that's new about me is that I am now married. So <laughs> I, brought, I brought my wife, I brought my wife, Jonna, and uh, our friend, Gio, uh, from West Palm Beach this trip, and we've been here um, 10 days. This is our last day in the UK. We go home tomorrow, um, back home to West Palm, where we have been leading a ministry called The Collective. Um, I don't know if any of you follow me on Instagram. If you do, you might see me post about The Collective often. Um, but for those of you that don't know, I do want to give kind of a testimony and, an, and a life update for why I haven't been um, in the UK or really anywhere else for the most part over the last two years. When I flew home two years ago to West Palm, the Lord put it on my heart um, to launch something that I thought was temporary that he fully intended to be long-term, but he didn't tell me that. So when we launched this small group to be young adults from different churches coming together and having family and community, I didn't know that he was then going to ask me eight months later to fully commit to it, not travel and build it, build people and build community, which was definitely not something that was on my radar. I had always been a worship leader that had um, begun to pray for people on the streets. And basically my life was, I lead worship, I pray for people on the streets and I read my Bible and that's my life. And I want to do that all over the world. And that's, that was kind of my direction. Never, ever, ever pastoring or leading any type of ministry ever. And if I was going to, it would definitely have to be after I was 35 and the Lord was going to then tell me, and maybe, okay, for sure we would do it because maybe we'd have two or three kids and okay, fine. I can, I can lead something that's, you know, here, but I'm 20, you know, I'm, I'm thinking I'm, I'm 20, I'm in my twenties. I, I just want to travel the world and I have the opportunity to, I get invited to be all over the world. So I, why, why not, you know, uh, do that. So then the Lord said, Hey, I'm asking you to uh, not give up on your dream. I'm asking you to help me with my dream for South Florida. Um, and it was an incredibly hard thing to hear and to swallow. Um, so to commit to the Lord's dream for South Florida, uh, fully knowing that I hated it was difficult. Um, but honestly, guys, what the Lord has done in the past two years has been incredible because now I not only love what we do, I have a heart for where we are. Um, the Lord was able to heal my heart for a disdain towards a city, towards a region. I didn't like being in West Palm Beach, Florida. For some of you that know my background and story, I was kicked out of my house. I was kicked out of my church. I lost everything because I had this encounter with the love of God. And, and it all happened in West Palm Beach. And so I didn't realize that when God was asking me to be in West Palm Beach, he wasn't asking me fully just to be in West Palm Beach because of wanting to do the collective. He saw something inside of my heart that wasn't whole, a part of me that wanted to be anywhere else but there. And God does not care as much about building my ministry as he cares about building me as a person. And so he didn't want to take me one step further with a crack or a fracture in the foundation of my heart. And that crack and fracture being a disdain towards a city. Um, although, yeah, my family and I and friends and I, we had 
uh, forgiven each other and reconciled in a lot of ways and have a better relationship than we did before, still there was a part of me that didn't love the city, didn't want to be in the city. And God said, that's not okay, because if you are truly to love people the way I love you and the way I love them, there can't be a part of you that hates an area, because I created that area, and I love this city. So if you are to actually love me, this is God speaking, if God's saying to me, if, if I'm going to love him with all my heart, but I don't love a city he created that he loves, then I don't love him, because I cannot love what he loves. You know. So if we cannot love what he loves and who he loves, then we can't love him, Because to love him requires us to love what he loves and hates what he hates. To love people and to love him with everything and hates sin. Everything that separates us and people from him, right? So anyway, the Lord started doing this work in my heart. So eight months into this small group, we were um, uh, hovering maybe 15, 20 people here and there. Young adults from different churches. It was a really cool thing. The Lord was really putting um, our, our hearts towards developing and prioritizing prayer. I'm sorry, um, worship and community. And uh, in August, the Lord brought that on my heart to actually launch it. And I was very, very afraid of that. I did not want to do that. I actually thought it was demonic. I thought I was <laughs> uh, really confused because I said, God, you don't change your mind. So you already told me I can do these things. So why, why would you change your mind and tell me to do this thing? This is absolutely demonic. God, I need clarity. And so for four months, I was asking the Lord for clarity and for him to truly speak above the noise. But it was him the whole time speaking. Um, I just didn't want to listen. So I don't know if there's been anybody in this room that just didn't want to listen because what God is asking you is something you don't want to do um, or be in a place you don't want to be. Um, I tell you now, two years later, it's incredible to just be obedient. It's really easy to obey when it's something you want to do. It's really easy. It, it's actually awesome. Like loving Jesus, following Jesus is great when he's taking you a place you want to go. But uh, Jesus often will take us to places we don't want to go. Um, but will we love him and will we obey him in that place? And, and him being the shepherd, you know? Because uh, when was the last time you saw a sheep leading the shepherd? You know, you don't see that. You see the shepherd leading the sheep. So, um, Anyway, having said that, eight months in, uh, we had this um, idea to launch a worship night, a big worship night. We called it the, the gathering. There's a ton of prophetic stuff that went on with that. Um, basically, I stumbled into uh, this thing with a conversation with somebody, and they were like, oh my gosh, you need to do this worship night. You need to do it. And I'm like, no, I didn't mean to stumble into this. I was actually having this conversation with you so that you would be inspired to do it, not so that I would do it. Um, but I confided my venting into a friend, a close friend. And my friend, instead of telling me, yeah, man, don't do it because he knows how busy I am, he didn't say that. He was like, you should do it. And I'll bring my youth group and we can talk to so-and-so and he can bring his youth group and we can talk to our other friend. They can bring their young adult group. So we end up doing it, and 27 churches worth of young adults and youth gather, and we did our first collective gathering uh, over two days, and um, it was incredible. So we said, let's, uh, we did not expect it to be that good. So um, we said, let's do another one in January. So we set up another one, and in the space of that first one to January, I really was being pushed to my end. And it, in December, I came to my end, and the Lord finally said, no, this is me. I am asking you to do this, and I'm asking you to fully commit to it, which I knew meant no traveling or minimal traveling. Uh, I have to work way more to provide an income because I won't be able to 
live off of traveling and leading worship and um, music and stuff like that. I'll have to work more. So I, a serious commitment. My wife and I were about to get married. I have to buy a house in West Palm now. I hope I was hoping not to, so I didn't do it. So um, all these things happened, and we relaunched our small young adult group of, at this point, maybe 15, 12, 15 people. We relaunched as the Collective Weekly, a weekly expression of this worship night that we did called the Collective Gathering. So we launched in a new building in a different area of the city near downtown, and we launched as Collective Weekly with 12, 15 of us, and then the Lord said, prioritize prayer, because we already had worship and community. He said, prioritize prayer, Um, develop pre-service prayer uh, within your community, which is something we had tried to do two times before, but didn't have the leaders to do it. So two guys came into our community, and the Lord was like, they're the ones to do it. I had no history, relational equity with them other than this moment. But the Lord was like, these are the guys to lead the prayer ministry. (laughs) And I was like, for real, this is how it's going to be. So Gio was one of those guys that walked in and um, uh, him and and another guy um, began to lead and build the prayer ministry. And we said, well, we have young people, mostly young people. So young people aren't going to want to pray. So we need to teach people how to pray. Because as you know, young people or most people in general can sing for one to two hours, but they can't pray for 10 to 20 minutes. Yeah. So we were like, we need to teach people how to pray. So we're going to give them a 20-minute a, a prayer segment. So we start for these 20-minute pre-service prayers. But um, young kids just started coming earlier and earlier and earlier and earlier, pushing back our 20 minutes to where now it's an hour and 15 minutes before service. And 20, 30 young people come to pray And now in our weekly meetings, we have about 80 to 120 young adults that come from not only different churches, dozens of denominations. We have reformist thought people in there. We even have current cessationists in the room, Catholics, Methodists, Baptists, non-denominational, Pentecostal, charismatic. We have all these different denominations and people from different churches that come to our weekly meetings every week. And we still do the worship nights every three, four months where we gather a couple hundred youth and young adults, where we really believe that if we put 12, 10, 12-year-olds 12 in a room of 20, 30-year-olds, 18, 20, 25-year-olds that are worshiping Jesus, the 18, 25-year-olds have a natural big brother, big sister um, uh, inspiration to the 10, 12-year-olds. And at 10 and 12, they get to see the next generation that they look up to naturally worship Jesus, which gives them permission to worship Jesus boldly and dance and sing and be on fire where maybe their friends wouldn't be that example for them. And we also know that if we're going after family, we can't go after family and just be young people and exclude a whole demographic of age. So we have to include the mothers and the fathers to truly be family. Malachi 4, 6 is about the hearts of the fathers turning to the sons and the daughters and the hearts of the sons and daughters turning to the hearts of the mothers and the fathers. So we said, even if there's not mothers and fathers turning to us at the moment, we're going to find mothers and fathers to turn to. So you come and we invite you to our meetings. We invite um, mothers and fathers and grandparents and grandmothers um, to our meetings just to be there to be uh, life-giving and supportive to all these young people that come in the community. So uh, that's kind of what we do. There's 14 of us on leadership. And um, uh, what we came here to the UK to do was for me to share that, basically give a life update of what we've been up to. 
um, what we've been doing because um, I have an extremely huge heart for the UK. It feels more like a first home than even a second home. Um, that's maybe something the Lord's done in me, but um, either way, it feels like home. And I have this heart that I've communicated to our team, and our team really carries and shares the same heart. So we've seen something work in West Palm in South Florida. And uh, there's ministries, all, well, there's people all over the United States that are calling me saying, hey, we want to do a collective in D.C. We want to do a collective in New York. We want to do a collective in Atlanta. We want to do a collective in Miami. We want to do a collective in Dallas. We want to do, and there, there's these people that want to do collectives. And we haven't said yes to any of those because we've just been building our three priorities, prayer, community, and worship. And we don't want to get too busy doing a million other things, but something we do want to do and open the conversation is um, helping friends of ours here in the UK um, find whatever God's strategy for reaching young people is in the UK. And we as the collective want to come and support that. Whether that's a worship night, whether that's a weekly meeting, whether that's a monthly gathering, whether that's a quarterly gathering, whatever it is, we want to come worship and pray with people in the UK together about God's heart and strategy for the UK. And basically us just support. That's all we want to do. It doesn't need to be called collective anything. We just want to come and support it. So in the spring next year, it looks like we're going to be bringing um, hopefully 20, 30 of us from the collective. Um, from our culture there, and we're going to do worship nights in different cities, hopefully wanting to gather tons of young people to those worship nights where basically the night will be prayer and worship. And whatever people get while they're praying, we want to write them down and take those words and those strategies that God is giving us and then build a prayer team after the worship and prayer night to continue praying into those strategies um, and basically take it from there. Um, so that's something that we're looking forward to doing. So that might be um, next year in the spring. So hopefully we're here in Cambridge um, and we get to do that here for one of the cities. Uh, it'll probably be a seven, 10 day thing for us. Um, but I am really excited about that. So with that being said, that's the life update. That's what we've been up to. So it's been an awesome thing to watch the Lord really do something in spite of me. Um, because that whole thing I never wanted to do. So the fact that it's working and the fact that it's happening is absolutely just for sure evidence that it is the Lord because I was fighting it the entire time. So um, anyway, let's go on to the word. Today I want to share and I want to talk to you guys about Jesus. <laughs> yep. There's not much else that's really important or worthwhile talking about, although I do believe it. And I do believe, honestly, um, that Mark and the team here does an incredible job about teaching practical life things. Um, and I think it's incredible. Um, most of the conversations I have with Mark um, are like, yeah, I wish the church was teaching that. He goes, yeah, we just did a class with our church, you know, three months ago about that exact thing, you know. Um, so I love Mark, and I love how he pastors and how he teaches and how he leads. He has a, a, a huge heart for the Word of God, which I do, which is why I connect really well um, with, with Mark, because we need to have a love and a passion for the Word. We cannot love Jesus without loving his word. We cannot live in the rhema uh, word of God speaking to us today, right here and right now, and never go into the logos written word of God. We need both because he is both. To love God outside of spirit, but just in truth is not to love God, as well as to love God in spirit, but outside of truth is not to love God, which is why in John 4, Jesus said, true worshipers will worship the Father. The day has come 
where they will do it in spirit and in truth. For so seeks the Father those that would worship him this way. So you need the spirit, you need the truth, and I love that Mark does that, and I love that the leadership here um, honors that, the spirit, but also the truth and how that applies to our practical life while we're at work and doing stuff like that. But today, I want to talk about Jesus's practical life. So with that being said, who here knows that the word intentional requires a cognitive thought before you can get to a place of intentionality? Fair? I can say that? Okay, so before I can be intentional, I need to have a cognitive thought process with myself to decide what I'm going to then intentionally do. Right. So if we are to look at the scripture, often we are implored to live like Jesus. Um, Paul is one of the main um, advocates of this, but we are encouraged, live like Jesus, right? So when we decide to follow Jesus and we decide to um, carry his cross uh, and, and his name into all the world and preach the gospel, the good news, right? The best news. We've made a cognitive decision to follow Jesus, but have we followed it through with a cognitive decision to live like him? So what I want to say to what I want what I want us to go through in thought this morning is that a lot of us can find ourselves in a in a place where the idea, oh yeah, living like Jesus, yeah. Yes, sign me up. Yes, I want to live like Jesus. Have we actually taken the time to step back, look at what a lifestyle of Jesus looks like, to then decide, yeah, I want that lifestyle? Or are we just like, I want to live like Jesus because it's in the song I'm singing? You know, and, 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 we, and we just have a very vague understanding of living like Jesus. But when we're talking about it at small groups, at church, with friends, with peers, yeah, I want to live, like, live like Jesus more. We sing the songs that say, I want to I be more like you. I want to love more like you. I want to draw closer to you. We sing these songs, but do we understand the weight that that brings? The type of line in the sand, per se, that we're drawing when we say, I want to live like Jesus. So I kind of want us to um, go in to that thought this morning, if that's all right. I have the scriptures kind of um, in my head, so I don't have them written down. So if you want to flip to them, you can. But this is more of a catch it. It's not a, a, as much of a taught it thing. So it's either caught, it's not really taught. So um, you can flip through your Bible um, or you can just write down the verse references go there later. I'm really going to use the verse references as examples um, to support the thought, okay? So um, with that being said, um, when we're being intentional, it actually helps weed out unhealthy motives if maturely handled. When we decide to live like Jesus and we actually have intentionality as the motive to live like Jesus. I'm, I'm fully intentional in living like Jesus. It actually helps us weed out the false motives. The motives that are like, oh yeah, I wanna live like Jesus because my church does, or my friends do, or my immediate sphere of influence does, so I wanna live like Jesus too, or I wanna live like Jesus because I wanna love him the way that he loves him, or uh, maybe a motive that, and these are all, they sound okay, um, or yeah, I wanna live like Jesus because it's the it's the right thing to do. If we aren't responding to his love for us, we can't get far enough. 
if you're doing it for somebody else, even if it sounds good, but you're not doing it from an encounter of his love for you, then you won't know the limits, the limitlessness of his love that he's now asking you to live like. He loves us limitlessly, right? And that needs to be something you encounter so that you can respond to that love limitlessly. When you see somebody else love Jesus, you see them through rose-colored lenses and you see them in the best light and you choose the boxes and the limits that they live their life through, you don't know their real struggle, you don't know their real temptations, you don't know their real heartache, but you wanna live and love Jesus like them, but you don't really know what's fully going on. So then it gives you the excuse in the moment when you need it to say, well, I don't feel like it right now. Our love, our everything for Jesus needs to be a response to him. I love that John 15, 16 gives us permission, well, gives me permission to say that because he says, you did not choose me, I chose you. And because I chose you, go and bear fruit. We have to respond to his love first. He chose us first. We love because what? Yes. So we have to understand that we need an encounter with his love. If your encounter with his love is just, a preacher telling you that he loves you, that's not an encounter. See, his love ruins you. Can I say that? His love ruins you. You are dead to the world. In fact, it ruins you so much that nothing tastes good anymore if it's not from him. It ruins you so much that you can't find happiness and joy outside of him. It ruins you so much, all the things you used to do with friends that you love you don't love anymore. It's numb to you. It's, 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 it's lifeless to you. It's like, it's like eating tofu. <laughs> Every day. <laughs> because you tasted steak, you know. You had it. You had a good steak. Oh. You went to Nando's. No, I'm just kidding. Not Nando's. I don't like Nando's that much. Uh, for all of you that love Nando's, it's just overpriced. It's just overpriced for the quality of food. Come to America. There's better chicken places that are cheaper. <laughs> so are you guys hearing what I'm saying? Okay, cool. So let's jump into this. I'm going to talk about six things that Jesus lives like. Six topics. There's more. There's more. Absolutely. I just, I don't think that we can get through more than six this morning. So... I'm going to talk about six. Um, the six I'm going to talk about are worship, humility, prayer, the word, rest, and community. I feel like to intentionally live like Jesus, I need to, with cognitive thought, understand what he prioritized. Anybody in business or anybody in music knows or anybody in sports knows if I want to be the best, I need to adopt the principles or the priorities of the people that were the best that have gone before me. Who's ever done that with anything? If you want to cook like a good, if you, it, so in America, we're having Thanksgiving coming up soon. So if I was to cook our Thanksgiving turkey dinner, I'm going to look up a YouTube of Gordon Ramsay cooking a turkey. I'm not going to look up a YouTube version of just a random person cooking a turkey, I'm going to look up Gordon Ramsay cooking a turkey because he's the best. So if I follow some of the principles that he does, I might get close to a decent turkey, you know? 
So we do that with everything from cooking to music to business to um, sports. We look to the best and we adopt the principles and the fundamentals of those people and we make it our lifestyle habits. So what I have found through the scripture of my own personal study is that Jesus prioritizes especially these six things. Prayer, worship, humility, rest, community, and the word. I feel like if we were to adopt his priority of these things, we could actually legitimately begin to live a life like Jesus and not just say, I'm Christian. I live Christ-like, you know, but actually people say, you live like Jesus. You're, you're Christ-like, you know, you carry that. So um, the first thing that I want to get into of the priorities um, is I want to start talking about the word. I think that that's a fair place to start. Is that right? Okay, and we're going to try to get through these. We won't go um, too long, and uh, I would love to talk to you more about any of these things. And if any of you want my notes, um, they are there are no Bible verses in here, but I can give you the notes that I have, and you can do with it what you will. Just let me know. Um, and if you don't get a hold of me, I'm going to say this now before we get into it. Just Instagram message me or Facebook message me. My Instagram's love people always. My Facebook's Nathan Taylor. Say, hey, I want the notes. And then I'll send them to you. All right. Luke 2, 41. Um, in Luke 2, Jesus was found three days later after he went missing. <laughs> what I love about that story is uh, one of the things I love about the story, I just think it's funny, is that Mary has this supreme job. <laughs> Mary has this like cataclysmic job, <laughs> like the job of jobs. <laughs> You're going to raise the son of God. <laughs> like, <laughs> Your child is going to be God. So, um, yeah, you're going to watch him, feed him. Don't let him die on your watch, you know. Uh, uh, I can see any time, like, Jesus, like, I'm not saying he had the flu or anything, but, like, if Jesus, like, had a flu, coughing, like, oh, no, like, Jesus is dying. Let's give him medicine. Like, I could see how, like, nerve-wracking it'd be, but um, Jesus is uh, 12 years old, and they're in Jerusalem for their pilgrimage. And all of a sudden, some days into the journey of leaving Jerusalem, Joseph and Mary go, wait, shoot. <laughs> Jesus? <laughs> Jesus? <laughs> Please tell me you're here. You're just hiding with their whole entourage. They realize, dang it, we left him in Jerusalem. We need to go back. So they go back to Jerusalem and they find him and they look for him. They can't find him anywhere. They find him in the temple. And in the temple, it is said that Jesus was giving the word out like nothing and hearing the word and talking about the word and asking questions about the word so much so that the Pharisees and Sadducees of the day, they were astounded at the wisdom that was coming out of this 12-year-old untaught. They were saying, where did he learn this? Who could have taught him these principles and these revelations? Because Jesus... Philippians 2 says that Jesus limited himself to being like a man born under the law, although no, he was not bound by the law. He was born under a woman under the law so that we could be saved, all of us, under the law. So if Jesus was born into our humanity, and right before that it says that Jesus humbled himself, considering equality with God not a thing to be grasped, he humbled himself to become a man. He could have been born as a king or as a pharaoh. It still would have been a humbled state from where he was. To be born as a man was a humbled position from who he actually is and was at the time, right? So Jesus 
he didn't come and born at two years old, quoting Genesis 39. He had to put that in him because he had to model life for us. So if Jesus at 12 years old is astounding the Pharisees and Sadducees, it's because he had a priority to put the word of God in him before that time, which means he spent time with the Father in the word, putting it in at a young age. So that's the first priority that I see. You also see it in John 8, 31, where he, he encourages us to do the same. He says in John 8, 30, 31, 30, 30 through 33, somewhere in there, it says, if you are to be my disciples, who in the room wants to be a disciple of Jesus, right? Yes. So he says, if you are to be my disciples, then abide in my word. And the Greek word that he then says here is, and you shall know the truth. It's a Greek word for encounter. You shall encounter, abide in my word, and you shall run into, in your normal life, you will encounter the truth. The very same word used for when the woman at the well encountered Jesus while she was just doing her normal day-to-day thing, getting water. You will encounter the truth, and the truth will set you free. Okay, so we are encouraged to abide. Abiding meaning what? Dwell, live. So understand, there is a place that we can abide that is not the word of God. And I encourage you to search your heart. Where do you abide? Where do you rest? Is it Netflix? Is it Facebook? Is it YouTube? Where do you abide? Where do you shut down and breathe out peace? You're done. You kind of relax. Where do you abide? For a lot of us, it is Netflix, YouTube, social media. TV, music, sports, even work for some people. Food. (laughs) Some people, you abide with food. Jesus says, abide in my word. Matthew 7. um, Peter. um, Peter has this, I'm going to skip through this thing, but Peter has this encounter with Jesus, realizes that Jesus is who he is, and Jesus says to him, abide in, my, abide in my word and that'll become the rock that you build your house on. So we are encouraged to abide in his word. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's the word two. Go into community. John one, Jesus has not done any miracles that we know of yet. I do think that he did some miracles because of what is about to happen just a couple sentences later in this story. John one, after the beautiful, my, probably my favorite area of all scripture, John one, one through 14, where the word was God, and, and then it ends with, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I, I, one, through, one, one through 14 is my, one of my favorite areas. But it goes on to say that Jesus started gal- gathering followers. He started saying, Peter, or, well, Simon, follow me. James, follow me. John, follow me. Thomas. And he started gathering these people so much so that he had his disciples to set up the scene of our next moment, the first miracle right? The wedding. Jesus is at the wedding by himself. No. He's at the wedding before first miracle with what? Disciples. Before Jesus chose to do miraculous things, Jesus decided to get around him community. Before Jesus went into public ministry, he decided to get around him a family and pour into the family first before ministering. 
So much so that when the mom, Mary, came to Jesus and said, hey, we need wine, first of all, Jesus had to have done some stuff as a kid that made Mary say, hey, Jesus, we need wine. There's no wine. <laughs> hey, Jesus, we need more flour. Check the cupboard again. <laughs> 16-year-old Jesus. <laughs> I don't know. We don't know. That's an odd area. Um, <laughs> he gets the community around him because Jesus won't do anything alone. So why do we try? His intention was to pour into them because when he says to Mary, you know my time isn't come, and he goes back to talking with the disciples. And then Mary says to the servants, go do whatever he says, you know, and she really nudges him, as good moms do. So we can see that his intention was to pour into his family, his community. I will tell you guys that one of the priorities of Jesus was his community before ministry. And I would even, I would even tell you guys his priority was not even ever to minister, but his priority was to show us family, to reveal the Father and to reveal family again. We see this again later in John 17. John 17, the final prayer of Jesus that we know of right before um, he goes to the garden to pray to the Father. He has this beautiful prayer. It is maybe the most tear-jerking area of the Bible, um, other than maybe when Paul says to uh, Timothy, I have finished. Can you bring me my cloak? Because I'm gonna die soon. Like that, I have finished everything God sent me out to do. It's much like John 17 when Jesus tells the Father, I have accomplished now everything that you set me to do and I have not lost one that you've given me except the one that was predestined to. And then he prays this in 21. He says, Father, the glory you've given me, I give them now so that, so that they would become one the way you and I are one. The way I am in you and you are in me, I pray that they would be one in me so that, all of that to say, by their unity, the world would see them and know, to see and know that they are loved as you have loved me. Whew. Ah, his heart is family, his heart is community, his heart is relationship, his heart is for us to be one with not only him, but each other. He prioritizes community. The devil will do anything he can to to have you prioritize loneliness. Who's ever been going through a rough season and all of a sudden your natural reaction is to get away and not necessarily get away to pray although some of you will do that but get away just just get away because that is the devil saying go get away from family get away from community get away from this because this is strength it's an incredible thing to see even jesus would not pray and fast alone for too long right he would come back to family and community if we were designed to do it alone then jesus would have prayed and fasted alone and he would have done his whole ministry alone We're designed to have community, and in that community, develop disciples. Disciples, leaders that make leaders. That's that's who we're supposed to be. All right, moving on to the next one. Um, Number three, rest. So Jesus knew rest was his strength. The enemy is looking for a fight. Jesus is looking for his father. There is no fight in the presence of the father. I love that. 
Jesus knew rest was his strength. The enemy is looking for a fight. Jesus is looking for his father. There is no fight in the presence of the father. In Mark 4, Jesus, is, Jesus silences the storm only after being awoken. Jesus was sleeping and being in rest. And he was not awoken by, here's the, here's the key. He was not awoken by the storm. He was woken up by his community. He was woken up by his family that he did everything in. He rested near his family. Do you see that? He was woken up by his family. And from love of his community, it says that he saw the fear in their eyes and had compassion, looked to the storm, and then said, peace be still. Out of love for his family and community, not fear of the storm, Jesus commanded his peace to the situation. Rest. In Hebrews 4. Actually, I encourage all of you guys to read Hebrews 4 because the writer of Hebrews argues our reason to have rest and that of new covenant rest, not old covenant rest that Joshua got us into. In Hebrews 4, verse 11, one of the only three times that it says to strive for something in the New Testament is one of these, and it says, strive, make every effort to enter into his rest. One of our priorities given to us by the writer of Hebrews is to enter into rest. But we can see that because Jesus made rest a priority. Jesus could have stayed awake on the boat with the disciples hanging out, having fun. But Jesus prioritized rest. And in this case, it was natural. It was literally sleeping. And it was supernatural rest that came upon him because he was not woken up by a storm. Or Jesus was just that heavy of a sleeper. So I don't really know biblically as to which one it was. But I do know the one that woke him up was the disciples who were afraid. And that is because he was around community because he prioritized community, even so in his rest, that he would rest alongside his community. And I think that his hope was that they would have actually rested with him and gone through the storm without needing to actually command it to be nothing. And I love that Jesus commands his peace to the storm. It's the same language used in Matthew 10 when Jesus says, when you go to a house, bless that house with who? Whose peace? Your peace. Your peace. How can you have peace if you're never in rest? We strive to enter into rest so that from rest, we work. We don't work out of sight of rest, which is why we can give our peace. We have something to give the world, and it's peace, and it's incredible. So let's move on, because I know that time is running out. Don't look at your clocks. It's only 12. Just kidding, I lied. <laughs> I can't tell you this next thing and then have just lied to you. <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, number four. It's a huge contradiction. Um, okay, so <laughs> contradictions aside, number four, humility. I was, I was, uh, so when I was thinking about this message, I, I, God gave me those six things. And I was like, yes, these are the six things, you know, that, that you prioritize. And I just started writing them down. And I got to humility, and I was like, God, how did Jesus prioritize humility? And the first thing that the Lord said to me is he said this. He said, Jesus worked his whole life to make somebody else's name great. Ugh, that's hard. He prioritized humility by not making his name great, but the Father's. I've come not to reveal myself to you, but I've come to reveal to you the Father. Right now you pray to me to pray to the Father, but there's coming a day when you will actually pray to the Father yourself because you will know that he himself loves you and you won't need me to do it. This is insane stuff. Jesus absolutely had the right to absolutely uh, dictatorship it. 
You pray through me and I go to the Father, period, end of story. Worship me, I'll give the worship to the Father. Nope, he didn't do that. He prioritized humility by making the Father's name great. How are we making our own names great in our own lifestyles? That's the question. Are we living to make another's name great or are we living to make our name great? You can only do one of the both. You can only do one of the other. You can't do both and you can't do nothing. You're either doing one or you're doing the other. Whose name are you making great? Because you're either making his name great or your name great. And if you're making your name great, you are, well, I'm just, we're gonna, you can go there with your brain if you want. He said we're worshiping Satan on the microphone. (laughs) I'm just kidding, I'm not. But here, but at the end of the day, that is what's happening. You guys do know that there's light and dark, right? There's not gray. There is light and there's dark. And you're either making the light famous or you're making the darkness famous. It is what it is. I'm not, I'm not trying to tell you that you guys are Satan worshipers. I'm saying that we, in our, day, in our day-to-day practices, we do things here and there that just change what we're doing. And all of a sudden, we're, we're championing the light. And then all of a sudden, we're championing the darkness. And we can't even decipher between both because we live by our morals, not by his. You know, and, and one of those morals being people. Um, oh, well, they deserve it. I'm going to be kind to these people because they're kind to me, where Jesus clearly said, being kind to kind people is what Gentiles do. I tell you, I've given you a love that can love your enemies. So love and lay down your life for your enemies. Make every effort to do that. So when, when we justify why we will not be kind or why we will um, turn away and reject people because of the way they've treated us, we've just done what Jesus said Gentiles do. It, you know, so I, I don't want to go there today. I just, I want you guys to know that we're either doing one or the other. He made the father's name great. Um, the next thing that he did is he rejected society. I love this. He rejected society's entitlement, but when embracing society's entitlement, he used it to compel others to wash each other's feet because he had first. The same way we love because he loved us first in John 13. So what I want to say is this. In John, if you've read John multiple times before, you can see a funny trade. Uh, um, a funny, um, what's the word? Pattern. pattern. Yeah, pattern. Yeah. Um, I was looking for another word that starts with a T. What is it? Trend. trend. Yeah. I'm from America. I should know trend. I should know that word, trend. Uh, <laughs> to live trendy. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so there's a trend, there's a pattern in John, and it's that every time Jesus is addressed, it's always rabbi, teacher, Master, rabbi, teacher, master, rabbi, teacher, master, rabbi, teacher, master, Lord, rabbi, teacher, master, Lord, all the way up to 13. And then Jesus, um, it says in black letters that knowing that he'd been giving authority over all things, takes off his outer garments, puts himself with a servant's towel, begins to wash the disciples' feet, gets to Peter. Peter has an issue with it. Jesus destroys that issue. Peter's like, wash my whole body. Peter's, and Jesus is like, you don't need that. And then Jesus gets up. All right, cool. Set the context, tone. Jesus gets up. And it's like he addresses the pattern that has been subliminally mentioned for 13 chapters. And he goes, you've called me rabbi, teacher, and master. And it's good that you do so. This is the first time that he's addressing this. You call me rabbi, teacher, and master. And it's good that you do so. Because if I, your master, washed your feet, then that means you, if you are to be anybody's master, must wash their feet. So Jesus uses the society's entitlement only as a benefit for him to compel us to be greater servants and then rejects it all the other times. Who's good? No one's good but the Father. 
Why are you blessing me? The Father did it. Like all throughout all these things, the Son only can do what he sees and hears the Father saying and doing. So anyway, that's humility for me. Um, And also I wanna say this, that in Hebrews it says this, really beautiful, that Jesus was heard by his Father because of reverent submission and learned obedience through his sufferings. So maybe some of you are like, what's going on? I'm trying to pray to the Lord. Hey, I, I encourage you, practice reverent submission, which means take your life and submit it, huh? For that one, I believe it's Hebrews 4 as well. Mm-hmm. Four, five, or six, somewhere in there. Um, yes, and that is in the ESV or the New King James. It's not said that way in all of them. Okay, cool. Um, all right, so moving on to number five, and then I'm gonna work on closing up here. Is all right? Is this, is this making sense to anybody? All right, cool, cool. Um, five, worship. I have a lot written down for this one, but I'm going to try to, try, try to go. And, and, um, and I'm going to start with saying that worship is music. No, I'm just kidding. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to start by saying worship is not music. Worship is what we prioritize. We all worship 24-7. We all worship 24-7. We are worshiping what we are prioritizing. To worship, break it down in the Greek, break it down in the Latin, break it down in the Hebrew. It means to give all your attention to. That's it. So to worship is to prioritize something. Jesus prioritized worship by prioritizing these things that I'm saying unto the Father. Do you see that? He didn't just do them because it was the right thing to do. He was worshiping the Father by prioritizing these things that caused him to not do some of the things that maybe he would have wanted to do. He's a, he's a person, and I'm a person, and I want to go to amusement parks sometimes, you know? And, um, and if I had to choose between preaching at a church and teaching the Torah uh, or go to an amusement park, man, I would, I would choose the amusement park. I wouldn't necessarily want to go teach Leviticus, you know? You know, Jesus had Isaiah to work with. You know, like, we have Paul. Almost written out messages. You can actually, in the Passion Translation, just read Romans 8. You don't have to preach it. Just read it. It's a preached message. Jesus had Isaiah, you know, and, and Deuteronomy, you know, like. Um, so um, what, what we have is, Worship is a priority. It's a priority. Worship is a lifestyle everyone lives. We just glorify different gods with our attention. Jesus understood his life would be a model for many. Even things he could have done and gotten away with, he refused. Because though he could have handled it, he knew that, it, um, that we would have, and, and, and he knew that we would have his spirit. But knowing our struggle to live righteously, he knew that we would not benefit from that example. Let me give you an example of what I just said. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says the same thing that I just said, but just talking about meat. Paul says, all things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. Um, All things are lawful, but not all things build up. So I know that I can eat meat, but my neighbor, my brother, is convicted not to eat meat. So when eating together, I will not eat meat in front of my neighbor, causing him to sin against me, even though I am free from that conviction. And I don't have to abide by their conviction, but I choose to 
because I'm prioritizing them, which is Philippians 2. I am prioritizing another, so I'm not going to eat meat even though I could eat meat. But if I was to be served meat at an unbeliever's house, I'll eat it. But if they say that it's been sacrificed to an idol, then I won't eat it for the sake of conscience. And again, not my conscience, but the conscience of the one that gave it to me. And then he says, why would my liberties be defined by the confines of another? But he chooses to model an example that won't cause the person that is struggling to stumble. Jesus probably could have done a lot of things that is fine. A lot of things, like uh, just a lot of things that is maybe just more fine that we could have seen written about but we don't have them written about. We don't see them. And I believe part of the reason why is it would give us an excuse to do those things. But for some of us, those things is our struggle. For some of you in the room, alcohol is not your struggle. Let me make this simple. Alcohol is not your struggle. So you can drink a cup of wine and you're gonna be fine. Even two, but you're fine. You're, you're, you're okay. But some of you, your struggle is alcohol. So you can't even have a sip of wine because if you do, you'll go too far. So why would I, knowing your struggle, have wine in front of you, even though I can? This is the same thing that I'm saying. Jesus could have had a higher willpower for some things, um, but then with me, with me, I might not have had that. So I might see Jesus do something and say, well, Jesus did it, but then I can't because I struggle there. And for me, I can't. And Paul ends 1 Corinthians 10, that whole thought with this. He who honors his conviction to eat meat honors his conviction to the Lord. Whereas he that honors his conviction not to eat meat honors his conviction not to eat meat to the Lord. See that? It's really beautiful. And that is, that is worship. Um, and it also ties with 1 Corinthians 9 by being a Jew to the Jew, a Greek to the Greek, and um, uh, a slave to those that are slaves, and weak to those that are weak, so that by all things, by any means, we might win some. That, we have to practice that, and that is worship, by laying our lives down in that way for the sake of another. That is worship to the Lord. What we do for the sake of another, it's for the Lord. We honor that conviction for the Lord. Does, does that make sense? I know that that's a little bit of a vague, it can be a little vague, but did it, did it communicate over well? Yeah. All right, cool. Finally, I wanna end with, um, I wanna end with six and, uh, and then get us out of here. <laughs> or to coffee. I actually would love a coffee. Okay, so number six. Once I have coffee, I'll wake up so then we can come back and do this whole thing again. <laughs> We can go through seven through 12. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, number six, number six, prayer. Prayer, 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 prayer. Who prays? Every, you don't have to lift your hands, but who prays every day? It's usually a smaller amount than those that don't. I started with the word and I'm ending with prayer here. And I will tell you that none of the other four will work without stable lifestyles in both the word and in the prayer. I promise you, I promise you, they will not. And if I can make the comparison of spirit and truth, the word being truth and prayer being in the spirit, if I can make that, it all lives within those two. And all of it produces love. If you feel overwhelmed, stressed, condemned, it's, it's, 
you're doing it wrong. You're doing it out of your own efforts. Um, Jesus never made major decisions outside the context of prayer. In Mark chapter 2, we get a glimpse of his lifestyle because after ministering all day and night, this is in Mark 2, he woke up early to pray in a desolate place. Ugh. Guys, I just told you I want coffee after this. Jesus would have done this and then gone out that way and prayed in a field over there. That's basically what I'm saying, but even more so. He ministered all day, ministered all night, then gets up early to pray. To pray. Because he prioritized prayer. This was his worship before the Lord. In uh, Matthew 14, 23, after ministry, he prayed on a mountain until alone. <laughs> he was the last man standing. <laughs> uh, Jesus, Jesus was a competitive person, I think. Um, because, uh, no, I'm just, I'm, I'm just kidding. This is not a good example for this. But he was praying with all of us, right? And then all of a sudden, it was just him. <laughs> How long do you got to go? Because back then, they didn't have their phones asking them for their attention. Praying with Jesus was probably a pretty awesome thing anyway. So how long does that need to go before Jesus is left alone? And then after he was left alone, and I want to just, I want to connect this with like the, the whole like, tarry with me a little bit longer, another hour, right? After he was left alone, he's been praying a long time, a very, very, very long time. After this type of prayer, he then walks on water. I kind of wish, I kind of wish somebody would have stayed praying with him because I wonder if Jesus would have said, hey, it's time to go now. But we're taking the hyper, we're taking the express lane. (laughs) They think that they needed to go to get there. Well, they're slow. Let me show you what this feels like, you know, and walked on the water. But Jesus prayed until alone, then walked on water. Again, I want to highlight nothing major ever in Jesus's life happened outside the context of prayer, ever. Um, and that's also recorded in Mark 6. Um, Fasting. Jesus had premeditated fasting. How do we know this? Well, um, in Luke 6, 12, in these days, he went up to a mountain to pray, and all night he continued, and then named the the apostles. Do Do you guys see that? Jesus could have done it. He had the right to do it. But instead, before naming the leaders, right, he before making the decision on his own, he could have. He could have been like, God, this is the one thing I can do. I can pick my people because I have to live with them for three years. You don't. You know, so I get to pick the, the 12 people and I don't want Simon, but, you know, like, you're like I, get, I get to pick these people. Thomas, after all that I'm gonna do for Thomas, he's gonna doubt me in the end. So I wanna pick my 12 people that are gonna do it. And I like Judas. I don't want him to be the one that dies. I'm gonna pick somebody that I don't like. No, Jesus did, Jesus did not do any of that. He goes and submits it to the Father, Hebrews, right? He submits it, and he doesn't just pray for an hour or two. He prays all day on a mountain, and then all night, and then comes down from the mountain and names the apostles. When was the last time we made major decisions? Buying a house, changing a job, getting married, doing whatever, starting a business, all these things, and we prayed for 20 minutes. I'm just trying to, I'm just, I'm, again, let me go back to the beginning. I'm just trying to show us a cognitive thought process of saying, I want to live like Jesus, but do we know what living like Jesus looks like? 
Because you can't say, I want to live like Jesus and pray 20 minutes for major decisions because that's not the model that he ever gave. Jesus never gave us that model. He gave us a model of fasting and praying in regards to fasting when the disciples could not cast the demon out of the kid and he would throw himself into the fire. Jesus came down from the mountain after a moment of transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. Comes down the mountain Then the people are like, hey, Jesus, we need you to do this thing. And Jesus is like to the disciples, why couldn't you do this? They're like, I don't know why, why why couldn't we do it? And so then Jesus goes and says, "Um, go and come out of him. And the kid falls down dead and then comes back up and he's healed. And then the disciples are like, we said that. I guarantee you, we said those exact words. We even said it 10 times. We all said it 10 times. That's a thousand more times than you. But Jesus goes, this type of thing is only done with fasting. Did Jesus fast right then and there for that miracle? No. He had a lifestyle of fasting that he could pull on for those moments. When was the last time you fasted? And again, I'm talking to the majority of the room. I know that there are people here that do. When's the last time you fasted? Again, I'm just trying to raise questions. Are we living like Jesus? Do we know what it means to live like Jesus? And finally, um, I'm going to read this one. In Luke 22:39, And then we're going to close. Luke 22, 39 through 46. Here again, we are given a glimpse into Jesus' prayer, lifestyle. He doesn't play around. Luke 22, 39, yeah, 39 through 46. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when they came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter temptation. God, God, I'm so sorry. I don't know why I keep doing this thing that I know I shouldn't do. I don't know why I keep doing this sinful thing that I I know I should do. I I know I keep telling you this, but God, I promise this time I'm going to do better. I live by your righteousness. I live by your word. I live by your love. Temptation comes on the next day, that night. Oh, dang it. I did it again. I did that thing that I wasn't supposed to do. Oh, God, I'm sorry. I'm not going to do it. Next day, next day, next day next day. You're still in the same cycle. You're still doing the same thing. Jesus gives us a model different to just living right. He says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. He says, pray for it. Pray. He he literally says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and, and he prayed saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. Again, humility there didn't come to make his name famous, but the Father's. Um, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him in prayer. I want you guys to know that Jesus found strength in rest, but he also found strength in prayer. So some of you might be like, how did Jesus pray all night? How did Jesus do, how, how did Jesus do this, these types of things? It was because prayer for him was strength. He found greater strength in prayer than almost anything else you see in his lifestyle. And he says, and it says, and beginning in agony, he prayed more earnestly. With more strength, he 
he then prayed more earnestly. I'm giving you guys just a couple things here so that when you go home and you want to pray, these are some things that Jesus did. With more strength, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise up and pray that you do not enter into temptation. I will tell you guys one thing. When you feel tired and the word rest sounds really good, but Jesus is encouraging you to pray, I promise you it's important because in that moment, rest is not gonna be your strength. Sleep is not gonna be your strength. It's gonna be prayer. And that prayer over rest is a sacrifice and that is worship. And that lifestyle is honoring before the Lord. And that also is humility because you want to rest, but the spirit wants you to pray. That is humbling yourself before yourself and letting the spirit pray through you and with you, Romans 8. The spirit will pray through you and even words that you won't understand. This is the example and the model that Jesus gives us to live a lifestyle like him. We need to know and we need to rest. We need to know and we need to pray and we need to know and we need to be humble because often it's better to humble yourself than to exalt yourself because 1 Corinthians 5 says, what do you even have to prove? What are you trying to prove? Humbling yourself and staying in the word. These things, by prioritizing these things, it's worship. And it, 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 what it says to the world looking at us is like that person worships God because they prioritize these things even at the cost sometimes of what they want to do. But I promise you, and I'm going to close with this thought, and Mark, I don't know if you want to come up um, to, to pray out and everything, but um, I'm going to close with this thought. What you might not want to do in one season, and it's a discipline for you now, will eventually become a delight for you in the next season. What you discipline yourself now will eventually become a delight but it won't start as a delight all the time. And in fact, most of the things God wants to work on you are not the things you already delight in. So with that being said, um, I'll pray and then Mark can come up. Yep. Father, I just pray um, over our hearts and our minds this morning um, that any of us in this room that um, wanna live more of a lifestyle like you, that now that we have some um, language, some some thought put towards that. I pray that you would give us the strength and the courage to make the decision to live like you. And also the leading, that you would show us the way, that you would give us the path, um, that you would highlight to our hearts individually what we need to work on, whether that's um, prayer, the word, uh, fasting, worship, um, humility, um, community, whatever it is that we need to work on, God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see those things and also give us, especially God, give us grace to work on these things. Let us not condemn ourselves in the process, but be thankful that you are leading us and you're making us better and you are, um, you're taking out all the junk that we, don't, that we don't belong to. You're taking out all the stuff that we were never created for in the first place so that we can become more like you and more one with you. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen.